What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by Alan Corey, the real estate maxi. So we go over his portfolio, his journey in real estate, and updates on long-term, short-term, commercial, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so we get an update from a new perspective on the real estate market. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast should not be taken as financial advice. It is strictly the opinion of Alan and myself. All right, enough from me. Let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I've got my guest, Alan Corey, in the waiting room, where we're going to talk all about real estate. And he just started some more content with Lauren from Adulting is Easy. Uh, she's been on the pod before as well, so you know her. And we are going to dive fully into everything that's going on in the real estate market. But before that, big shout out to my sponsors. We got Pleb Lab, the hackerspace down in Austin, Texas. They got a lot of events going on, a lot of private things, or private events going on. So you could get yourself a pass, uh, a day pass. Uh, they got ticketed events, all that kind of stuff. Um, but they also have startup day and, uh, right before Bitbox boom on August 21st and 22nd, that Monday and Tuesday. So you can check out their website. I will post a link to their, uh, Google doc. So you can fill it out if you want to, um, you know, potentially pitch a startup, but they also have tickets. If you just want to come in and hang out with some of the people, listen to some of the panels and do all that kind of stuff as well. So check that out at pleblab.com. And then shout out to Idaho armored vaults. Check out Bob and team. They've been doing this since 2008. They're, they're some of the best in the game when you want to buy and sell some of the precious metals. They offer extensive amounts of liquidity, and they offer the lowest margins when you're trying to get in. So a lot of these companies, they jack up the margins, uh, and that's where they get you when you're trying to buy and sell gold, uh, silver, any, anything of that nature. Well, Bob and team are trying to end that and give you easier access to everything that comes to the precious metal market. So be sure to check them out at goldsilvervault.com and tell them Green Candle sent you. All right, enough of me. Let's get Alan up here. Alan, how you doing, man? Hey, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Of course. Ready to talk real estate. Yeah, man, let's do it. Let's take a dive. So for those who don't know you uh, or don't know anything about your background or maybe haven't seen any of the content that you put out, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yeah, I've been uh, real estate investing for 23 years. I've published three books about it right here behind me. Uh, started with a million bucks by 30, but I became a millionaire before 30. Hint, hint, it's real estate. Uh, and then uh, Subversive Job Search was basically after the real estate crash, um, reinventing myself into a six-figure career um, while real estate was in uh, you know the, the dumps. And then my most recent book is House Fire. Fire stands for Financial Independence Retire Early, and it's about how to retire early through houses. And uh, my approach is I take every bill in my life, and then I buy a house that will cash flow to pay that bill. And then as you do that, it usually takes four or five homes. You can pay, you know, get all that cash flow to cover all your bills, and then you're free to retire. So that's uh, that usually sounds pretty exciting to most people. Yeah, exactly. The fire movement is incredible. And I, I think that's kind of where I've heard the first time I heard about it was, you know, essentially in, um, in real estate. So I mean, is that what kind of drove drove you to this path? Um, and like, describe your background a little bit before real estate, like what kind of made you get into it? Were you, you know, maybe an agent or something along those lines? Or did you just kind of, I guess, hear about it from, you know, one of the maybe uh, rich dad, poor dad or something like that? Sure. 
I, I have the most conventional path I think everyone takes to real estate is that um, as soon as I graduated college, I moved to New York City to be a stand-up comedian. And um, I was doing that, working a nine to five, up in the clubs till three o'clock every morning. And, and I was like, man, I, I, there, I can't make this work. I need to find a way to get rid of my day job so I can focus on comedy. And so um, after devouring a bunch of books and um, you know talking myself into it, I was like, man, if I just buy one property a year for five years, then I can replace my day job income and then I can focus on comedy. But what happened was I was like, wow, I am better at real estate. I enjoy it. It pays much better. Let me just focus on real estate. Let's screw comedy. And uh, that's led to over a 350 door portfolio for me today. So what are you trying to say that you're not funny or what? Yeah, I'm not funny enough to pay for it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I mean, that's a t that's a tough tough uh, thing to get in. I mean, I, I applaud you for for making the effort, though. I mean, it definitely is, uh, you know, kind of I, I guess difficult to as you're outlining. But do you think that that uh, I guess that sense of that drive to try to you know accomplish that goal for comedy? You know, like you, you kind of had a purpose to get out of the nine to five day job. You know, is that, I guess, what, what's kind of driven you to kind of keep going and keep, you know, applying? Because, I mean, it's like, when are you going to kind of stop sort of thing? You know, it kind of comes to like every real estate investor's mind is like, all right, you know, I've made it to a certain point. Like, when am I going to just, I guess, wipe my hands out of a settle? But it seems like you still have that fire in you and you're still kind of going and scooping up properties and whatnot. I think it's how you're wired. I mean, it's not like, like, why is Mike, Mark Zuckerberg not quit or Mr. Beast or, you know, Cuban, Mark Cuban, like, like you're wired to want to see what you can push yourself, your own limits and what you can accomplish. You, you can't just turn that off like that. Like the, the worst vacation for me is going to a beach and drinking margaritas. Like I'll do that for three hours, but I, I can't imagine that being my life. Like that just sounds depressing. I, I want to challenge myself, try bigger and better things, get excited about new projects. Like to me, that's living the, the, Hey, when, why don't you quit? And, and I think that mentality comes from people who will never be successful because they're more interested in quitting than they are in succeeding. I love that answer, man. I love that. But all right, now let's take a dive into real estate like in itself. So you kind of just touched a little bit on your portfolio. So, um, but we talked about it a little bit on pre-show. You, you seem to have long-term, a little bit of short-term, and then you're getting more into apartment buildings. So, um, you know, I, I guess just kind of uh, describe a little bit of your portfolio, uh, like kind of your goals for it. Um, maybe in the next five to 10 years ish time, uh, like what are you kind of trying to look in, into uh, a little bit more and uh, what do you already have? Yeah, sure. So I've always tried to sell something and buy something bigger. So I started with $10,000 and bought a $99,000 condo as my first property. And then I, I decided whenever I sold something, I was going to buy something bigger. So then I sold it and bought a duplex and then bought, sold a duplex, bought a triplex and the triplex and bought a quad. And then I bought two quads and then three quads. And then uh, let's sell some of those. And then I ended up buying a 50 family single, 50 single family portfolio from a retiring investor. And then I packaged that and, and resold that to another investor and bought uh, some apartment buildings. So um, it, I do have ADHD. So maybe that's part of it. So I, I, I've, you know, I've built about 10, you know, new construction homes from scratch. They're like a million dollars each. I've done the flips. I've done, I've done it all. So for me, my advice is typically stay in one lane and become an expert of that. 
but I get bored of that. So I was like, Hey, I've never done this. Let me learn how to do this. And then once I feel like I've mastered it, then I'm like, okay, I want to go master something else like that. That is how I bring variety into my day right now. So, um, what I'm typically happens is I, yes, I, I am a realtor. So I do take out clients and sometimes I'm like, guys, this is a great deal. It'll drive me crazy if you don't buy it. And they're like, ah, I don't see the value in it. And then I end up buying it. So sometimes the deals just sort of happen to me. Sometimes, you know, retiring investors or old contacts call me, they sell me stuff off market. And I'm, and I, I can't turn down a good deal, so I'll buy it. So it's hard for me to predict where, where my portfolio is going to be in the future. It, it honestly changes week to week. Uh, and um, But I, I like apartment buildings most recently. And, and right now, you know, it's, basically doing what I'm doing, but on a bigger scale. And what I'm learning and what, what kind of scares a lot of people off is, man, it's easier to do the big deals than it is the smaller deals. It, it's when you're, it's easier to get a million dollar loan than it is a hundred thousand dollar loan. Um, it's easier to raise money for a project if it's over a million dollars and under, you know, it, these, these things that I didn't have any mentors growing up. I'm learning this as I go. And I, now I try to be a mentor for other people uh, to teach them these things, but um, it's just, sort of one of those things because the bigger the deal gets, the less they look at me as um, at what's Alan's credit score and how much money does Alan make? It's how much does this deal make, right? And and then it's less people investing in me, it's, it's investing in the deal. So as long as you get that good deal and the bigger it is, it's easier to get loans and investors and a team in place. It's much easier to property manage if it's big enough and I can put a in-house property manager in a leasing agent that has an office on site and has a full-time staff of, you know, handyman and tech repairs. My life just keeps getting easier and easier. The bigger I get, I don't have to coordinate tenants or, you know, this plumber or whatever there's on-site staff, right? You know, you, you hit that once you kind of get into, you know, 80 doors or more in, in a purchase. And um, I just, I'm, I'm learning this as I go and I, I teach others, you know, kind of, kind of uh, in my wake saying, Hey, you guys can do this too. This is what I've learned. This is what I'm doing. This is fun for me. Every day is a new challenge. And uh, that that's what gets me up and excited. And I, I, I love feeling like an idiot. I try to feel like an idiot every day because that means I've learned something. Like if I felt like an idiot, that means great, I've grown. And if I did, if I didn't learn anything, it was a boring day. And then I um, and I know I'm not smart, so something went wrong. <laughs> hey, I mean, everybody kind of realizes they're not smart when they kind of get into. I feel like when you get to a certain point, you realize everybody's just kind of winging it, right? I yeah, mean, everybody's right. just kind of figuring it out as they go. It's just who can, kind of, I guess, kind of think on their feet a little bit quicker than somebody else, but. At the end of the day, everybody's just kind of figuring it out, right? But um, you did kind of make an interesting point about like the bigger the deal, the easier it kind of gets, um, which, you know, is great in a sense. But it seems like, uh, you know, I, I talk about a lot a lot about this in my, my spaces and other kind of mediums. It seems like, you know, commercial real estate is kind of hurting right now, or at least that's the general sense of things. But it seems it's more... Uh, I guess, on the office building side of things opposed to apartment buildings. So have you, I, I guess, noticed maybe a little bit more of a boom of people trying to invest in, in apartment buildings or um, just like, you know, I guess, higher occupancy because more people are, I guess, holding off on buying a, a single family home, so to speak, and then just saying, I'll live in this nice apartment or in this building prior to purchasing, a, you know, my forever home, so to speak. Yeah. So, I mean, it, housing uh, for single family homes, there's a housing shortage. So even now as a realtor, like everything's a bidding more, even with high interest rates, just you, if your family's got to move or you got married or had a kid or job transfer, you have to buy a house. Who cares what's happening in the market? 
Um, office space, I do have a one office center that I actually office hack in where I my, where I'm recording this now is in my office, but the seven other tenants um, pay for the rent and, and, and more. But um, that's sort of evergreen because I like the tenants that are more people based. There's a, a preschool, a yoga studio, a barbershop, uh, you know, things that even during coronavirus, like you, they, they, they got affected a little bit, but you're you're not going to be Amazon can't replace you. Right. So um, they're more of an evergreen spot. Office spaces, that's, they're really, really hurting right now. So um, when you say time to avoid it, you know, to me that, that I see dollar signs, like there's opportunities, right? Like, like there's, there's, there's people wanting to unload at a low price. There's potential opportunities there if you're willing to um, maybe repurpose the property in some fashion, because I don't necessarily see office coming back anytime soon, but there's typically great office space and great locations that maybe you can repurpose to some of those um daily services that people want, like their coffee shops and things like that, um, or turn it into housing. Uh, you know, housing's evergreen. No one ever, you know, <laughs> the, the population always needs a place to live. So uh, I feel like if you provide good housing at a decent price, you're in business forever. Like, like why would you go out of business? Um, so it, it just comes down to running a good system and, and making sure the terms are right. Um, why things in commercial space are different is typically you don't get that 30 year fixed mortgage like you would in a single family house. I like investing in those. It, you can do that up to fourplex. So single family, duplex, triplex, quadruplex, all those can be bought with low down payment, 30 year fixed loans. And that's fine for me because uh, I would just wait it out over 30 years to sell if I ever want to sell because it's going to cash flow in the meantime, just because the property values go down. Typically, the rents don't go down to match. Uh, when I was going through the great financial crash 2008, 2009, my rents actually went up because what happened was there were fewer people that could buy a house. And then, so I had higher demand for tenants. Um, and so um, the, that, the housing shortage plus maybe people not being able to have the, the through inflation, have the money to for a down payment. We're, we're creating an entire generation, not we, me, but like America, we, they are creating an entire generation of renters and it's going to get harder and harder for them to get out of being a renter and becoming a homeowner because now you have all these investors in the single family space as well. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm evergreen buy and buying something that's residential living, whether it's an apartment, single family, quad, whatever, uh, buy it ASAP because it's just going to get harder and harder to buy because once it becomes it gets into an investor's hand, it's going to stay in an investor's hand. They're just going to sell it to another investor. They're going to package it together and sell it to another investor. So get on that property ladder and just wait it out and hold. And I think you'll be sitting pretty, um, sort of the, the Bitcoin method, just, you know, just, just, just acquire as much as possible and, and it's going to pay out in the long run. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know how much you know about, like, I guess, uh, the, the variable rates or everything else like that in, in maybe other countries. But in the United States, it seems like it's very advantageous to just own a home, especially if you could get it at a lower interest rate. But, you know, you brought up the low um, the low inventory. And it seems like I, I can't remember the exact number. I brought this up so many times. I should know the exact percentage wise, but it seems I believe it's like 60 or 70 percent of all mortgages right now are at 3% interest rate or, or, or less. Um, so 
you know, are, do you think like, I mean, as a realtor, uh, kind of out there kind of talking to people, do you think people are, I guess, less inclined to sell their home because they have it at a lower interest rate and they're kind of worried and, you know, they're thinking about maybe trying to, to time the housing market or something along those lines? Yeah, no, I, it's definitely happening. People are choosing to stay in their home because of their interest rate or they have to move, but they want to keep their house. And now they're becoming first generation real estate investors, which is who I coach. Uh, over at housemoneymedia.com, uh, a company I started with some other real estate investors to teach these first-generation real estate investors. So um, it, to me, it is an asset. And I've been making offers trying to assume, uh, certain mortgages will allow you to assume their 3% rate, or you can do a wraparound mortgage, get really creative saying, hey, I'll give you that. Your, I want to buy your property, <clears throat> excuse me, but the real value is not the rent or the location, but it's your mortgage. I need to keep that mortgage as part of your property. Let's get creative so that I can purchase it and keep that mortgage intact. So to me, that's a huge asset uh, on a property. Um, and people should recognize that, you know, sometimes you're selling that 30 year debt more than you're selling your, your property. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually had a friend bring that up to me at one point and said like, hey, you know, you can, I don't know, price it at whatever and say, I'll take this much in cash and then you can assume the mortgage. I never even really thought of that, but you know, you're, you're the second person to bring that up to me in a fairly short period of time. So, you know, is that a strategy that you see, I guess, more people kind of using that are starting to sell their homes or, um, you know, is it, do you think, uh, there's also, you know, some more of these mortgage products. I don't know if you've really seen it, but I've seen, you know, rocket mortgages coming out with one where you can put 0% down for not just VA loans and other things like that. And then there's, I've, been, I've heard rumors of floating out potentially a 40 year fixed mortgage. So as the housing prices keep increasing, there's going to require, I guess, less percentage down. Do you think that these, you know, uh, kind of scenarios are going to, I guess, continue to play out to make housing more, quote unquote, affordable for Americans or, you know, uh, yeah, I guess I'll leave it at yeah, that. Yeah. So, yes, America, as far as I know, is, is one of the only countries that allow these long fixed rate. You know, I know in Australia, um, you can only get variable rates and you have a renegotiation with your tenant every year uh, based on the rates of what your rent's going to be. So you're, you're, there's no stability whatsoever in some of these other countries. But the way I look about it is. I'm in the position where I want to get as much long-term debt as I possibly can, thanks to inflation. And my, my analogy with this is imagine that you pull up into a gas station and you find a dollar bill on the ground uh, today. You have two options. You can uh, go inside and buy maybe a Snickers bar or a bag of candy for a dollar, right? Hey, I found a dollar. Let's, let's celebrate. Or you can... Um, Take that dollar and be like, what is what would Dave Ramsey tell you to do? And, and he would say, mail it in and pay off a dollar of your principal uh, on your mortgage payment. Right. And then that will you know, lower your payments. You'll pay it off sooner. Um, as you get to know me, I'm pretty much take the opposite advice of everything Dave Ramsey says. And um, that is including in the story, because imagine if you left that dollar there and 15 years later, you came back to that same gas station and you're like, oh, wow, no one's picked up this dollar yet. Fine. I'll, I'll finally pick up this dollar. So what, what are you going to do? You have the exact same two options. You can go into the gas station and go buy your Snickers bar, except the guy's going to say, hey, sorry, buddy, the Snicker bars are $3 now, you know, so you can only buy a third of a Snickers bar. You, sh you should have bought it 15 years ago when it was cheaper, right? But I could still, 15 years later, send that dollar into my mortgage payment and pay off a full dollar's worth. Like that purchasing power is worth a third in the real world, but it's worth 100% in the future. So anyone who wants to pay off their mortgage 
early or, or doing the biweekly payments or throwing some extra at the principal, why would you take away this huge built-in advantage where, hey, I can lock in my expenses for 30 years. Like imagine locking in the, the cost of a can of Coke for 30 years. Like I would still be paying five cents from, you know, or, you know, some people would be paying five cents or, or a dollar uh, when a can of Coke was a dollar. Now it's $2, but in, in 30 years, it's going to be $5. You can lock in your expense. And if your housing expense is most likely the most expensive thing that you'll ever encounter in your life, at least a monthly expense, why not lock that in for 30 years? Because everything else in around you is going to get more expensive except your mortgage. So that's a huge, uh, huge, huge thing. You know, think about anyone that you know that's bought a house 20 years ago. They uh, probably are like one of the richest people you know. You think they're super smart. It's really just your grandma and grandpa that needed a place to live. And when they bought it 20 years ago, they were like, this is so expensive. I can't believe we're buying this for a house. And now you're like, oh, my God, you guys are so smart. You're a genius. And your mortgage payment's only 300 bucks a month. That is incredible. And it's like, well, you know what? When they started, it felt tight. And it probably still felt tight 10 years later. But now 20 years later, they look like a genius. All they did was hold on. And now their mortgage payment is only a couple hundred bucks when everyone else is a couple thousand. You can create that situation for yourself. Go out and buy a property today and then try to buy a second property as soon as you possibly can after and just acquire these long-term debts. And as long as you have tenants in place, it's not hard to do in a housing shortage uh, to cover the mortgage and have a little bit of cash flow you're going to be sitting really pretty and create a really nice retirement for yourself. And I'm also anti fire movement in many ways. That's why I wrote house fire because fire movement is all about getting rid of debt and living way below your means. But what's great about real estate investing is that I get to live above my means each year in my quote unquote retirement. I, I have a more extravagant life because my mortgage gets paid down, but the rent goes up. Like, you know, you raise the rent 50 bucks every single year. That's not much. That's typical. Sure, my expenses may go up a little bit too, but that 50 bucks is an extra 600 bucks. And then the next year, it's another 600 bucks. And the next year, 600 bucks. So everyone else who has like a pension plan or they're pulling money out of their stocks, it, they, they better hope that the prices don't go down because they're, they're withdrawing money to pay for their expenses rather than living off the money that they're assets are generating and that those assets will generate more and more money each year. So it's a, it's like flipping the switch in retirement where you get to live larger rather than living on a constrained budget, which is most people's retirement plan. Yeah, hundred percent. So, uh, you, you know, you know, you're nailing it on the head there, right? I mean, like the mortgage payments don't necessarily change too much unless, you know, maybe property taxes or something along those lines can maybe increase a little bit, maybe insurance here or there, depending on, you know, who your carriers or whatnot. But for the majority of, you know, the United States mortgages, relatively flat over that 30 year period, which is very nice. Um, and yeah, like you said, it, it seems like it's pretty interesting when a recessionary time happens usually rent kind of increases along the lines except for like you know homes prices decrease but rent is kind of always on the on the up and up so um you know in your like rental portfolio that you have right now is that kind of what you're noticing is that you know maybe you're, you're having more demand for you know a long-term renter opposed to um you know maybe uh maybe in years past where it's you know you maybe have a month or two of vacancy yeah i mean uh, you 
when you have a portfolio of over 10 units, you want a month or two of vacancy because otherwise you're that's telling me you're not charging enough because if if you have 100% you know occupancy then it's you you have more demand than you know than you should like you need to keep pushing the prices and pushing things up. Um I also look at it like if, if I was running a sandwich shop um, and I, I'm like, hey, I, I need to make $2 on every sandwich, right? And if the price of ham goes up 50 cents, well, guess what? The price of the sandwich goes up 50 cents. If the price of uh, you know the bread goes up or the packaging, the containers go up a dollar, I've got to raise my sandwich a dollar. It's the same thing with real estate investing. Like if insurance goes up, which it does, if property taxes go up, which it does, if mortgage goes up, which Hopefully it doesn't if you have that 30-year fixed mortgage. Well, then you just raise the rent and it's not you being greedy. It's not you taking advantage of someone. It's, hey, I'm running a business. These expenses went up. I have to raise the prices. But guess what? I'm not the only one doing it. Every single other landlord is doing it too. So if I don't do it, then I am that person that has 100% occupancy and I haven't been charging enough. So um, it's just a business and and it it is what it is. Like I, I, I'm not running a charity where I'm going to run, you know, real estate and, and give people free homes. Like that's not the business of real estate investing. And there are programs for that. They're nonprofits and they do great jobs. And I partner with some of the, on, on some of the buildings that I buy and manage. So um, there's, there's good programs out there if, if things are tight, but if you're a real estate investor, it seems to me in my 23 years that it's every year is, stagnant or better like it, it it's the dip and where people get scared is they all have a story of their house went down in value and i sold my house uh and lost fifty thousand dollars and my response to that is that's not real estate investing that is primary living primary living is very emotional it's personal decisions you bought that house because of the commute because of the price because of the neighborhood the close to transportation whatever the reason was but it wasn't because of what's going to make me top dollar right so a real estate investor is going to buy based on a spreadsheet and they'll buy the ugly house and i like to say real estate investors like their houses ugly in the street but sexy in the spreadsheets now, primary home buyers do the opposite. They want it sexy in the sheets. And eh, I don't care so much about the spreadsheets because this is my house and this is my identity. I'm going to tie it to it. And But it's, you, the loss doesn't ever occur until you sell. Someone living in a primary home and selling, they are only selling based on whims. Like there's, they're, they've got a job transfer. They got remarried. They got a divorce. They've outgrown their home, whatever. They want to move closer to family that they are forced to sell at whatever market that whim is happening. And so it's not a calculated risk. It's complete gambling. Hey, I'm going to have to sell right now. Oh, damn, the, the market's down. But a real estate investor doesn't think that way because they've got that their fixed expenses. They're making 300 bucks a month, 500 bucks a month off each property. And if the property values go down, uh, I'll just keep collecting my 300, 500 bucks a month until the property values go back up and then I'll sell. Like I can wait out any down market and the down, you know, the, uh, the longest a down market has ever occurred is seven years. Like if you bought a property at the worst time during the crash, it, it came back to value seven years later in the worst hit area. So it, it, I'm always buying for a 30 year hold horizon anyway. So what's seven years? Like that's not even a third of that. So um, that's, that's, all the sort of risk that comes with real estate investing is people trying to think that primary buying is real estate investing when it's not. And I also want to go back to why mortgages are good. I like to take a mutual fund approach to real estate investing where a lot of people are like, I'm going to buy one house and pay it off in cash. 
let's say that's $100,000 cash and you pay, or you have $100,000, you buy it in cash. Now, your other option would be, let's chop that $100,000 into $20,000 each, buy five different houses with $20,000 down, and then you get $80,000 mortgages on each one. A lot of people freak out, that's so risky, you got so many mortgages, but that's not the way I look at it, because if you have one house and it's vacant, and you can't rent it, you're making zero. If you got five houses with that same $100,000 and one is vacant, you're still cash flowing. Those other four are carrying you up. That's the mutual fund approach, right? Now it keeps going more. If you were to get sued for whatever reason, people are always worried about getting sued. Well, if you're got a $100,000 asset, the attorney's going to say, yeah, so let's sue them because they got $100,000 in the house. Let's make them sell their house and we're going to get that money. Well, if you've got a house that's got $20,000 in it and $80,000 mortgage, the attorney's going to say, it's not going to worth your time because you're going to pay me $20,000 to sue them. But they, we forced them to sell the house. They've got an $80,000 mortgage they got to pay off. They've got no assets, right? So you're protected that way. So it actually reduces risk. Last point I want to make on this is if we continue with the thought line that we're going to raise the rent 50 bucks every single month, if you got one house, well, that's great. You raised it to 1050 and you're making an extra 600 bucks uh, the following year. Well, if you got five of the exact same house and you're raising it 50 uh, on each one, well, then you got, you're raising it 250 uh, each month. So you're making more money in cash flow if you have more homes. You're reducing risk of vacancy and you're reducing risk of being sued. It's just, you want to spread out as much money as possible and then also take advantage of all that debt being paid down, all that debt for the inflation gain. It just makes sense to try to scale real estate as much as possible at all times. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, and I really like that. So, um, you know, you, you kind of talk about, uh, I guess, just like holding it for long term and whatnot. But I kind of want to get into the differences between like a long term renter and short term, because it seems like, you know, newer investors, when they first kind of come in, they like Airbnb sounds sexy, right? I mean, everybody here is like, oh, you know, whatever, if you have an Airbnb, it's you charge astronomical amounts or a lot more money, you're, you're able to make a lot more money, maybe there's a little bit more work here or there. But, you know, that's where the money is being made. Maybe the $50 a month or the $100 or $200 a month even that you can make on a long-term renter doesn't sound as appealing as maybe like, you know, potentially a thousand or whatever it is at Airbnb. So for somebody who's kind of just starting out or maybe has like a house or two, you know, do you, uh, I guess, especially in the kind of times that we're in where it's kind of like a shaky economic uh, time, like uh, how, how are you, I guess, like kind of uh, teaching newer real estate investors to get in that bring up Airbnb or bring up some of these maybe short-term rental platforms? Yeah, no, this is a short-term rentals are, are definitely a, a gateway for new investors because it's sexy, right? Oh, I bought a vacation home. I've got the second home. Look how pretty it is. You can look at the pretty pictures, right? And and it's okay. That's fine. I get it. Um, and you make more money in short-term rentals. It's just more headache. And that's everything with real estate investing. The more headache you're willing to put up, the more money you're going to make. You know, low-income Section 8 tenants, that's where the most money is. That's where the most headaches are. Investing in A-class properties in luxury neighborhoods, that is the lowest headache, but it's also the lowest amount of money you're going to make. So it's where you want to be on the spectrum. I tell everyone, if you're going to buy a short-term rental, make sure that if you want to pivot in the future to a long-term rental, that you run the numbers on it as a long-term rental before you buy so that you can pivot and still make money. And that's important because a lot of people get burned out by that headache. The second thing is cities are changing their laws. You can't have short-term rentals anymore. And um, you don't want to be caught you know, 
off guard. So if you always are buying property and running the numbers, would this make as a long-term rental if I wanted to pivot in the future? Meaning, can I rent it to someone for a one-year lease unfurnished? Will it still cover the mortgage and all the expenses and everything? The answer is typically, yeah, go ahead and buy it. Like, cause you're, you're running the numbers in worst case scenario, you can pivot to a long-term rental. Uh, so that's what I do. And that's what I teach uh, as well to, you know, really protect yourself. I love options and you can have, you can have multiple options. So buy the short-term rental. Hey, if that doesn't work, can I do it as long-term rental? Can I do it as a midterm rental, which is 30 days or more? Um, can I renovate it and sell it? Can I, you know, add an extension and charge more for a short-term or long-term rental? Like I'd like to have options. Options are your best friend in real estate investing because you're, you can pivot and you can make moves and still make money. Like when I first got it started, um, you know, everyone, I'm, I'm the dreamer in the relationship, right? My wife is the uh, more level-brained one and, and everyone in, in the relationship knows where they are. Um, so when I first started real estate investing, I was like, here, Saudia, like this is how we're going to make money, option A. If that doesn't work out, this is how it's we're going to make money, option B. And if that doesn't work out, this is how we're going to make money, option C. And then finally, she's like, oh, wow, you really thought about this. And I was like, yeah, this is all I think about. And uh, now you can kind of see how my brain works and then why it feels like it's a low risk. And she, and then that was like, okay, we'll try it. And it worked out. And then I did it the second time and the third time. And then she's now she's got the point like, Alan, you don't have to show me these things. I know you know what you're doing, but it's just really, I'm doing it to create these safety nets uh, for myself over and over again and um, and being able to pivot if, if I ever need to based on the economy and coronavirus and, and things like that, that you, you really need to be able to have multiple ways to make money with your properties. Yeah. And I appreciate that sentiment too, of just like, Hey, just do the numbers for the short-term rental make sure that are the long-term rental, make sure that works before pivoting into short-term because you never know, um, especially, you know, with a, like, Airbnb's algorithm, all these different kind of factors, right? HOA too, like all these other kind of things, laws and cities you brought up uh, that could potentially change. Um, so I know that that it sounds like you know more sexy and appealing, but especially you know with uh, the sentiment around Airbnb, I feel like if you don't have like one that has you know some sort of appeal to it, whether it's uh, some artsy thing, some sort of theme or whatever, like if that's not maybe your forte it's going to be a little bit tough to get in and kind of, uh, you know, keep up with that headache. And then you're not going to be willing to deal with that headache for as long period of time. And it's not going to be as worth it to you. So um, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that sentiment, but um, you know, on the the topic of Airbnbs, do you, do you see this uh, kind of industry continuing to grow uh, as, as we get over time? Or do you think like, you know, maybe hotels are going to make a little bit more of a resurgence just because we had maybe a lot of uh, newer real estate investors get into Airbnb around the 2020 time with the lower interest rates. And, you know, maybe they didn't have uh, as good of a quality, uh, maybe users didn't have as good of a quality experience in Airbnb uh, as prior times. So, uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I think it all comes down to your guest experience because uh, that is your customer. If I am getting hotel-like service from a house, I would prefer to have a house. I like to be connected to a community and, and walkability and not feel like I'm in a hotel. Um, I feel like the big operators, the ones that are 
property managing short-term rentals and they've got hundreds of units and they've got a brand and they've got their own towels and everything. They're basically running a hotel through Airbnb, right? So if you are going to be a mom and pop operator, just know your bar has to be that or above because they have economies of scale. They can buy all their mints uh, at, at discount. They have a staff at a discount, right? So you have to match them or be above, or the alternative is you, you've got to really be cheap uh, and, and drop your price. Um, but ultimately the short-term rental business, it's an online rental rating business. You're as good as your five-star reviews. So that's the headache I come into is because of mine, if someone the HVAC breaks and it's 4th of July weekend, well, guess what? Um, it might have trouble getting an HVAC guy out there and I'm going to get a one-star review unless I give him the whole weekend for free. Um, with a long-term tenant, they understand and they're like, okay, the guy can't come next week. Okay, that sucks. All right, well, here's some fans in the meantime, right? And okay, whatever. Um, it happens. Um, so if that's, that's the headache, but more reward if you can pull it off. Um, and just know that it's a lot of people also buy that short-term rental or a vacation home because they want to use it. And they're like, oh, we go to the beach every summer. Well, it'd be great if we can have it. And then it's when we're not there, we rent it out. Now, the weeks that you want to use that are probably the weeks you're going to make the most amount of money. Just be aware of that. Like you want to go over Christmas break to the skiing lodge that you bought, right? Well, so does everyone in the world, which is why you can charge top dollar for that. So just be careful when you run your numbers that you're not going to eat up the most productive weeks. And then on the flip side of that, that means you're going to go in the weeks when it's vacant. And when is it going to be vacant when no one wants to go because it's terrible weather or whatever. It's not the season that for that short-term rental. And so you're always visiting it yourself um, in the off season. So um, I like to also recommend buy short-term rentals that you don't want to use. Sure, it may happen, but that should not be one of the uh, primary drivers of you buying a short-term rental or second home, vacation home sort of situation. Yeah, I got it. That makes complete sense, right? I mean, if you buy one in the beach and you come during spring break time, I mean, that's that's where you make your bread and butter right there. It's probably yeah. more in the, those couple months. I mean, you know, anecdotally, I'm down here in Tampa, Florida. So, you know, the January through April time, generally speaking, is the, the go-to time for people to come down here because it's the weather's great. You could still go to the beach, all that kind of stuff. But you know, if I wasn't living here, for example, and I wanted the house, that's probably when I would want to come too, right? I mean, right. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. But, um, you know, it, it all is just kind of like interesting how it's intertwined, uh, you know, the, the overall real estate market and how people analyze it based on, you know, just all the macro kind of things going on as well. Um, because it does seem like, you know, there's a lot of potential cracks, you know, obviously, we've had the Fed raise interest rates at a significant rate, which has raised mortgage rates, interest rates, especially for personal and investing loans. Um, you know, maybe you could get a hard money loan or something like that at a little bit more of a reasonable bull. Um, comparatively, I'm not really quite sure well versed in that. But, um, you know, generally speaking, the, the cost of homes are maybe stagnating, but the interest rates are going up. Therefore, mortgage payments are going up. So, um, you know, on, on all this kind of, uh, I guess, bringing it all around, um, you know, where do you think, I guess, uh, I guess, while the Fed is continuing to raise interest rates, and it seems like they're going to throughout the rest of the year, do you think that's going to still cause some issues maybe when it comes to the inventory side of things of, uh, you know, real estate, um, whether it's, you know, somebody even looking to get a single family home or multifamily or whatnot? Well, it'll affect commercial more, uh, mainly the higher rates because, really the rates are what you 
it's a calculation of the rates is really what you're willing to buy a business and a business would be apartment building or office space. So interest and, and also their, their loans turn over every five to seven years anyway. So that's more of a commercial um, game that uh, really keep an eye on. On the residential side, I think it, it's irrelevant. It, it You know, a good interest rate doesn't make um, a great deal. Like I've passed up deals that had 0% interest rate. It just didn't make sense. But I've also bought deals that have 20% interest rate because it does make, make sense. And the way I look at it is, you know, everyone wants to time the market. You know, I have clients for the last 10 years who are like, you know, I, I, the prices are too high. Everything's a bidding war. And it's like, okay, you know, um, now prices are sort of stagnant and interest rates have changed. No, interest rates are too high. And it's like, okay, you've been saying this for seven years. Like, you're not going to buy a property. Like, you're always going to find something that's wrong. And the way I look at it is if you're buying an investment property that's cash flowing, you know, that let's say you buy a single family house and it has a seven and a half percent interest rate, but it's making you 200 bucks a month. Great. Three things can happen in the future. One could be, Interest rates are always seven and a half percent forever. And it's like, great, you know, I'm glad I bought when I did rather than waiting for interest rates to change, right? Interest rates could go up and let's say they go up to 10%. Great, I look like a genius because I locked in at seven and a half, just like the people who locked in at 3% look like geniuses, right? I locked in at seven and a half, great, interest rates are 10%. Um, I'm still cash flowing, you know, making my couple hundred bucks a month, wonderful. Third option, interest rates go down. What can I do? I can refinance. I can go, you know, refinance to a 6% interest rate, restart that 30-year clock that I love, and I'm making more money uh, now, and, and not just a couple hundred bucks, probably double it because I've lowered my interest rate. So buy it. If it's cash flowing, wait until the riches, you know, you can refinance or don't because uh, you'll be in good shape either way. Yeah, now, now I kind of want to, before we wrap up the show, I kind of want to dive into more of like the tax benefits of real estate, because I think that's, that's a big aspect that gets overlooked, especially, you know, just in the, in the overall overarching things, right? Because, you know, maybe you can find some stock that goes up a hundred percent in an entire year, but if you sell that, right, you, you have to play that, um, you know, that uh, capital gains tax, but there's ways to kind of get around that in, in, uh, in real estate. So, um, you know, when it comes to the tax incentives and everything like that, are, are there certain tactics that you use? Maybe it's depreciation, 1031 exchange, all that kind of stuff. Like, do you want to kind of dive into maybe some of those strategies and what you find as is really helpful when it comes to, you know, avoiding paying a, a ton to the tax man? Yeah. I mean, that's what's great about real estate is you get to be that rich guy that doesn't pay real pay any taxes while everyone else pays taxes. So that, you know, you really want to understand these rules and it comes first with mortgages. And I know I, I keep talking about mortgages, but think of it this way. If I was running a factory and I had to buy, you know, get some widget maker, I would, it costs a million dollars. I would have to get a loan, put a down payment on it, that loan to, you know, I put $200,000 down to buy that widget maker and $800,000 loan uh, to pay off the rest of it. And then I make widgets and I pay off the loan over time, right? There's interest on that widget maker loan. That is a business expense that I can write off. It, it's been saying, hey, this is my income, but I had these business expenses. I had to pay my staff to run the widget maker. There's interest on the loan and uh, that's deducted. And then whatever's left over is my profit and I pay taxes on that. Real estate works the same way. Your mortgage that is on an investment property has a portion of it that is mortgage interest. That is a business expense that you can write off. So many times that business expense, let's say it's 400 bucks a month and your cash flow is 300 bucks a month. Well, guess what? 
you don't pay any taxes, even though you're making 300 bucks a month, because your, your income is covering that entire mortgage payment, the principal and the entrance, and you're making 300 bucks. But the tax guy saying, well, you spending 400 bucks to make 300 bucks. And okay, you don't have to pay any taxes. You're a terrible real estate investor. You're losing a hundred bucks a month, but no, you're not. But to the IRS and the way that they do accounting, you are. So that is a huge, huge way to avoid taxes. Um, if you're willing to live in the property and do a house hack um, and you live in it for two years, a house hack is where you live in one part of the unit and you rent out the other, like a duplex, triplex, and you go to sell. If you're single, uh, the first $250,000 is tax-free. If you go to sell after living there for two years, the, uh, if, I'm sorry, if you're married, it, the, the first $500,000 are tax-free. This is wonderful news. If you never want to live in any of the units, you can sell a property and do something called a 1031 like-kind exchange, which basically it doesn't avoid taxes. You're just kicking a can down the road. And that says, hey, I sold an investment that was $500,000, but I'm buying an investment that's $600,000, which the U.S. Uncle Sam wants you to encourage real estate investors to do. And that's why these tax laws exist. Hey, as long as you're selling something and buying something within 180 days that's bigger and better, well, we're, we're not going to collect taxes until you decide to sell that property. And so then it's, it's there's a bunch of benefits that just tackle on top of each other. And that's why investors never want to sell to you know anything. Or if they sell, they're buying something bigger and they're selling to other investors. I'm buying from other investors. So once a property gets in investors' hands, it's always in investors' hands because of these tax loopholes that uh, you really want to understand as well when you get in the game. Yeah. I mean, it's overall great stuff. And it seems like, you know, a lot of it, it, it can also come down to like the, the networking aspect of things, right? Because like once you kind of get into that game, you start investing, like you said, properties change hands, but they usually stay in investors hands opposed to going from, you know, an investor to maybe, uh, I guess, a family who's trying to live there for, for a long period of time, um, you know, which is great. And, uh, you know, part of that, uh, I guess, networking aspect of things can also come through, you know, maybe podcasting or other things like that. So what is, uh, I guess, the goal that you ha that you guys have for House Money Media? Like I, I prefaced it a little bit at the beginning of the show. I know you you started that with Lauren, who's been on the show, and, and you have another co-founder as well. So, um, yeah, what's the overall goal with House Money Media and how can uh, how can everybody kind of figure out what you guys are, are doing over there? Yeah, so we're my, my two partners, uh, Lauren Keenauman of, of Adulting is Easy and Tom Brickman of, of, of The Frugal Gay. Um, we all have a passion for real estate and we all have different strengths and, and, and experience. Lauren's uh, the short-term rental queen. Uh, Tom's long-distance investing. Uh, he, he also has a big niche of under $100,000 homes, which exists. People don't know that exists, you know, but there's $100,000 homes in pretty much every state but California. And so that, that's sort of his niche and his market. And um, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I do sort of the big things, but I've been in it for 23 years. I'm also a realtor. I, I've, I've been, I just have experience that I wanted to add. And so there, these were two people that I respected in the space. And I, what I realized is we were answering similar questions or everyone came to me and had a short-term mental, I'd send them to Lauren. Lauren had a commercial question, they'd send them to me, I'd send them to Tom. And I said, you know, why don't we put all of our energy and efforts into forming a company? And that is what we've done. The three of us have come together, House Money Media, and we have a, a weekly blog, um, a weekly podcast, um, very active social media presence on Twitter, where we try to educate and launch first generation real estate investors because we are all first generation real estate investors 
all the rich people I know, people who are in this game and have more money than me in real estate, they all came from a real estate family. And uh, I didn't have that privilege. And I'm learning as I go. That's why I want to feel like an idiot every day. And um, same with Tom and Lauren. Hey, we're all growing and learning. Why don't we be that rich family connection, that knowledge base for first generation investors that we all wish that we had? And that's why we teach courses and do podcasts over at House Money Media every single week because uh, we love to give back. And it, it's fun for us to, to see other people, you know, live their dreams like we figured out on our own how to live our dreams. It'll, it'll be a, a shortcut, if you will, to, to success is, is, is the idea. Yeah, that's awesome stuff. So, um, yeah, on that, how else can they find you? I know you got your Twitter handle there, but why don't you say it for those who listen to our yeah. audio? And, uh, yeah, how can they find the, the House Money Media and your, y'all's podcast? Where is it uh, all located at? Yeah, sure. So I, I, my handle is Real Estate Maxi because I'm a real estate maximalist. If you haven't picked up on that, everything I do is real estate related. I'm, I'm definitely a real estate maximalist. I, I did take that uh, that term from the crypto community. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you can find me on uh, everywhere at, at Real Estate Maxi. Uh, M-A-X-I and uh, House Money Media. It's at House Money Media on, on uh, social media, housemoneymedia.com. And the podcast is Real Estate Investing with House Money Media. So um, I think any sort of Google search of Real Estate Maxi or House Money Media, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll connect with me and um, you'll know quickly that I don't shut up about real estate, which is why I have to do podcasts and write about it and go on other people's podcasts. It's, um, you know, it's an addiction of mine. Yeah, but that's awesome stuff. Hey, there's worse things to be addicted to than than making money, right, man? There you go. There you go. Yeah, exactly. All right, Alan. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and taking us a dive into everything that that you know kind of encompasses real estate. So everybody should check out House Money Media. Have you guys started your podcast already and like already launched it or just launched it? So yeah, we're uh, we're getting our sea legs right now. But yeah, we're we're episode three launches uh, this week. Okay. Awesome stuff. Yeah. We're recording this on Monday before the episode comes out. So episode three will probably be released by the time we come out. So you guys could go ahead and check that out. And uh, yeah, Alan, thanks so much for coming on, man. Brandon, my pleasure. Happy to do this. And uh, thanks for doing what you do. I learned a lot as well. Awesome stuff. Thanks, man.